If you're living the days in the life of an ag teacher, then you'll fit right in. I'm your host, Carly Erickson, and I'm here to remind you to do what you love and love what you do. As always, thanks for listening and welcome to class. Today we're going to be talking about pollinators and why they're so important for humans. Pollinators do exactly what is in their name. They pollinate flowers that create fruits and vegetables that humans eat. Most commonly, when you hear the word pollinators, people think the honeybee. The honeybee is actually a pollinator, but they're not the best pollinator out there. Honeybees are usually focused on collecting food to bring back to their hive, whereas other pollinators are looking to collect food and also hit as many flowers as possible to bring the food back for their babies. Some people don't even know that the bumblebee or the mason bee or a leafcutter bee, those are all bees that pollinate. One of my favorite bees actually is the sweat bee. Some people think that the sweat bee is a cute little black and yellow striped bee and it's annoying and it comes at you and you're sweating and they bite you, and actually none of that is true. Sweat bees are actually green in color. And so the next time that you swat at what you think is a sweat bee, it's most likely actually a fly. Flies can also be black and yellow in color. The difference is they only have two wings instead of four. Pollinators can also be other things than just bees. There's bees, butterflies are also pollinators, birds, and even bats. Because of all these pollinators, we have food like apples and cherries, tomatoes, peppers, almonds, squash, and even pumpkins. It takes a single pollinator to go around to each individual flower to pollinate so that we have all those fruits and vegetables. Insect pollination accounts for 35% of the produce that we eat. Growers of an apple orchard, for example, they love the mason bee. The mason bee is really great at coming out in the spring and they will last through midsummer and they will pollinate all the flowers on say the apple trees or the cherry trees. And that's what gives the grower the best yield. Without bees or other pollinators, the farmer would physically have to go through and hand pollinate each individual flower in order to create a fruit, whereas a bee can come out every day and do it on their own. This all sounds great, but what happens when we don't have pollinators? We're seeing a decline in our pollinator numbers and we have to find a way to help them. Some ways that the farmers can help pollinators is to use CRP or conservation reserve programs. CRP is where you take your farmland out of production and you turn it into a prairie land and that allows natural prairie flowers to grow and it provides a habitat and a food source for pollinators. Prairie strips are another really great way for farmers to help the pollinators. Having a prairie strip in the middle of your field or even along the edges that allows the pollinators to travel a farther distance. Most bees can only travel less than one mile at a time. So they have to have food sources in between in order to be able to continue to fly. Then they also have to get back to their nest so that they can bring that food back for their babies. 
really anyone can help this issue. You don't have to be a farmer. You can be a homeowner and make sure that you plant appropriate flowers for bees and butterflies. Maybe having a monarch garden in your backyard, which would consist of milkweed. Avoiding mulch is another really good thing that homeowners can do. Uh, and rock in your landscaping. Mulch and rock are really hard for bees to get around and move. And so when they're able to just burrow in the ground directly into the soil, that's where they make their nests and you will actually see them be more abundant in your yard or on your land. And if you have a home garden, that could be really good for you because they will come and pollinate hopefully all of your garden. These are just some simple things that we can all do to change the pattern of the bees that are in our area. Simply avoid mowing your ditch. Keep those natural prairie flowers growing in your ditch and allow for the bees to consume all the pollen and nectar that they can possibly have and they will fly around for days pollinating all of your neighbor's gardens and we will have better yields than we've ever had. Another way could be if you and your family are going to a nature preserve or a forest preserve, avoid disturbing wildflowers. Keep those prairie areas as calm as possible with minimal human disruption. That will allow for the maximum amount of pollinators to be in that area, and that's another pit stop for them. That's a food source for them before they can get to your garden or before they can get to the field where they pollinate. And those are absolutely necessary for bees who have a shorter flying distance. You know what time it is. It's time for the Ag Career of the Day. Today's career falls under entomology as a forensic entomologist. According to crime scene investigator edu.org, forensic entomologists focus on insect colonization on a human body during post-mortem. These clues can potentially tell the time, location, and show severe sites of trauma related to the death. This career requires a PhD in entomology and the completion of other coursework in forensics. As of 2010, the U.S. Bureau of Labor and Statistics reported that the average salary was $55,730 annually. And that's the Ag Career of the Day. People who live in urban areas also have a great opportunity to help the pollinators. Advocating for community support to plant pollinator habitat throughout your community. Landscaping around a building, for example, sometimes they just do mulch and the bare minimum of landscaping. Simple flowers in that area instead of just bushes, that can make all the difference for the bees. Also, urban gardens, those are becoming more and more of a hot thing to do and if you can be the leader of that issue, if you can be the leader saying, hey, the bees are struggling, the pollinators are struggling, what can we do in our community to help? Absolutely take that opportunity to lead that issue and push that through your community and help business owners and help other people understand that they can make a difference in a small way. And after everybody makes their own small difference, we're going to see a big increase in our pollinator numbers, and that will create a big difference that's being made in your community and in all other communities.
Today we're here with graduate research assistant Kelsey Fisher. She's a PhD student here at Iowa State University studying entomology and specifically monarch butterflies. Kelsey, tell us about your position here at Iowa State. Um, so I am a PhD student. I'm in my fifth year and I do research with monarch butterflies. Um, and, and I'm a, a part of the Iowa Monarch Conservation Consortium and the research group here at Iowa State. And with that, we're trying to, um, it's an interdisciplinary group that, that is looking at the, the monarch quote unquote problem from multiple angles and then trying to figure out how to put uh, like best management practices together for, for establishing habitat and what we need to be doing to maintain it and what monarchs need. Um, so it's a really cool opportunity that I have here because there's uh, professors from all different departments, including agronomy, entomology, natural resource ecology and management, um, ecology and evolutionary biology, all coming together to ask research questions about what do monarchs need and um, how can we best implement these practices. And everyone has graduate students and everybody is tackling it separately, but then we're all able to put our work together. So um, specifically, I'm looking at monarch butterfly movement ecology. So I actually put little transmitters on monarch butterflies and release them and track them to figure out where they're going. Um, and the reason I'm doing that is because I want to see um, how monarchs are finding and then utilizing different like habitat patches. So places that have milkweed, their uh, larval obligate host, they, the, the host that they really need. Um, so how are they finding that? And then how do they find the next one? And when they come in contact with like a habitat intersection where you have a cornfield next to maybe a prairie or a roadside or something, which direction do they go and how do they make decisions at those types? make decisions in quotes, but <laughs> how do they how do they make decisions? Where are they going to go? Um, because then the hope is that uh, we'd be able to establish habitat patches in places to help facilitate movement because um, we need a lot more milkweed in the landscape, but we don't just need more milkweed. We, we need the monarchs to be able to find the milkweed. So if it's in places where we know that they're going to be interacting with it, then we'll be able to get more monarchs interacting with milkweed, laying more eggs, and then ultimately getting more monarch butterflies. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so those are definitely some things we can do, I would say, to help increase the monarch butterfly uh, habitat and just overall well-being. And in numbers, hopefully they can go up if we provide milkweed and more habitat. And what are you finding? Like, where are they going in your research? Yeah, so um, that's really interesting. I'm still, like, teasing things apart. Uh, but I actually really excitingly just got a paper accepted awesome. uh, where we were tracking monarchs within a prairie. And the one really, um, really interesting finding that came out of that is that they'll spend some time within a prairie, but when they leave the prairie, they take really, really big steps or really, really big flights is the, the right word to say. So they'll be in a prairie and they'll, they'll, they'll fly around from flower to flower, milkweed to milkweed, spend a little bit of time there. And then as soon as they decide that it's, they're done there, they, they fly like 250 meters to go find another place to go. So they wow. take these, these big flights. And um, this with the, the tracking technology that I'm using, this is the first time we've been able to see those because uh, people have been watching butterflies forever. Um, but you really can only, you're limited by your, your vision. And so you can only see 
what they're doing within the prairie. And then once it leaves that area, usually people are like, I don't know where it went. Or you can't have confidence that you're looking at the same butterfly again. And with this, I'm able to have a little transmitter on it that's producing a signal. And then I can track the signal down and find exactly where that butterfly is, um, which is really cool. Yeah, that's awesome for sure. I'm sure that that research is going to go a long way. And and hopefully we're able to see uh, specific patterns in the future, for yeah, sure. Yeah. Um, so we know that monarchs aren't the best pollinators, but in general, what are we doing? Uh, are, we, are we seeing that there is a real decline in pollinator numbers? Yeah. So um, I, I could first talk a little bit about like why maybe monarchs aren't necessarily the best pollinators. Sure. Um, so bees and like native bees and bumblebees and and things like that, they're, they're furry. And so when they go and visit a flower, um, the pollen is able to attach to their little furry body. And then they squeeze all the way into the flower and then get pollen all over them and then go and squeeze into another flower. And when they go into the other flower, some of the, the pollen gets off their fur bits and it, like it pollinates the flowers. Well, monarchs have a different strategy of, poll- of feeding. And they feed through like a siphoning proboscis, which is pretty much a straw. So their mouth parts coil up, and then um, when they go to feed, they uncoil it just like you would put a straw in a cup, and then they coil it back up again. So, and that proboscis isn't furry. So they're just putting their straw in, maybe getting some pollen, maybe not, and then then coiling it back up. Um, one of the really cool things, though, is that the monarch butterfly needs the same types of things that the pollinators need. So monarchs can lay their eggs on milkweed, but they need to forage for nectar on all kinds of plants. And diversity is really good for their health. And so we want them to be feeding on lots of different things. And those lots of different things are also what the bees are using and the other pollinators and stuff. So the monarch butterfly itself isn't a fantastic pollinator. There might be some pollination there every once in a while, but it's really more of a, like, an icon. Uh, people like the monarch butterfly, and if you can get behind the monarch and the things that the monarchs need, you're also inadvertently getting behind pollinators too. So it, it kind of just can be like the poster child of of pollination, even though it's not stellar. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. It seems like they really do go hand in hand. They mm-hmm. need the same things, and if we're helping one, we could be helping all of them. Yeah, yeah, because the only thing that's a little bit different is that the monarch butterflies need milkweed. And if you're going to be planting um, like a, a prairie patch or or you want to be planting a pollinator garden, um, there's really no reason not to plant milkweed um, because you'll be helping the monarchs, but also all the native bees, they all feed from the milkweed too. And so it it can really be helping um, all of them. How important are pollinators to the future of our food supply? Yeah, so most of the the really yummy foods that you like eating, like strawberries and blueberries and apples and fruits and veggies, they all need pollination in order to to be in existence. And mm-hmm. so um, so we really do rely on pollinators for those types of things. Uh, the I'm, I'm going to say that it's not necessarily that we need pollinators to, um, to keep our food supply going because we don't necessarily need to be having all of those things. I mean, it makes our life so much happier and yummier to have all of those things. Um, But we could probably figure out ways that humans could help do pollination services if it came to that point. Mm -hmm. But the problem with that would be that it would be crazy expensive 
to buy your strawberries or your blueberries because then you're going to be having a person that has to go from flower to flower and hand pollinate all of the crops rather than just having bees do their their regular jobs every day. Um, so definitely pollination just makes our life easier. <laughs> yeah, definitely. So how are farmers able to contribute to pollinator habitat then? Yeah, um, there's a lot of ways. So one of the things that is really important to notice is that most of the land in Iowa and the Midwest is in agriculture. And um, so it really does fall a lot onto farmers, but we want to make sure that we're having a relationship with the farmers so people in urban areas can help the farmer and so that we all feel like we're in this together. So we're all doing what we can. And so one of the things that I was talking about earlier was the Iowa Monarch Conservation Consortium. And that's actually an organ a group of 45 organizations that are um, like agriculture and community and all kinds of different groups coming together, including like the Blank Park Zoo and the DNR and Pheasants Forever. And the, the role of, of the consortium is to get the members of the consortium helping to establish habitat. Um, and so through this, it's not just farmers, it's, it's everybody's problem. We all need to work together and everyone can do what they can. But for farmers specifically, um, there are some government funded programs like the, uh, the CRP, Conservation Reserve Program. And within CRP, there's the CP42, which is specifically a pollinator mix. And so, um, and that pollinator mix include, could include milkweed. So you get to kind of pick what you want to be putting out there, but, um, uh, you would get some some government funding to be able to put a little area of your land into um, into conservation land and have some beautiful flowers on it. But in addition to that, not everybody has the opportunity to have CP42 property. Um, so taking advantage of any of the little spots that aren't utilized, like one of the great things is that like the edges of the fields um, – they, they can have some great things in them. And if you throw some seeds out there in the winter, um, maybe the following year you'll have some beautiful blazing stars along the edges of your fields rather than just like the weedy stuff that might be out there. Um, also, like if you, there's an area where you're parking your equipment and you mow it all the time, maybe there's a little section of that that you could put like a little pollinator planting or something like that. It doesn't have to be huge areas. And one of the things that's great with the monarch and with the with bees and everything too is that they're really mobile. So they they don't go to a place and stay there. They they continue to move from from habitat patch to habitat patch. So having these little patches really helps facilitate movement across the landscape. Yeah, and I think it's important to mention one thing you said that they don't need to be really big spaces. Mm -hmm. It just needs to be a little space, and we need to have a lot of them in different areas. Yeah, yeah, and that's one of the great reasons that. Um, urban gardens and things like that are happening because they are these little patches and kind of just taking that thought into the agriculture world will just make it so much easier for these monarchs and, and bees to find things that they need to survive. Um, so yeah, just the little areas that are not utilized. Like, so if you, if you round a corner all the time and then you have like a grassy patch on the edge of that corner, that could easily be converted into like a pollinator habitat. Um, so just taking advantage of places that maybe feel underutilized. Yeah, absolutely. And like, why would we want to mow that if we don't have to? I mean, exactly. let's, let's save ourselves that time and effort. Yeah. Um, so aside from planting some pollinator habitat, 
what are some other things that we can do at home or in our communities? What would you say to a potential ag teacher or a student in a classroom that they could do to help? Yeah, so it's really important that we get the milkweed and the the nectar plants and the native species out there. Um, And also uh, farmers and landowners or house owners or whatever, people that have some land, some bit of property, um, making sure to use pesticides responsibly is really important because that's linked to uh, the decline in bees and pollen in monarchs as well. And so um, making sure to use the labels and not spraying when you shouldn't be spraying because the winds are too high um, and making sure that you're, you're paying attention to those kinds of things. That's really important. Um, but also we kind of touched on this a little bit, but um, even if you do have a grass lawn, if you just mow it a little bit less frequently, then some of your clovers and stuff will be able to flower. And there's been a few studies recently that's really interesting that um, they've looked at lawns that are mowed every two weeks and lawns that are lawns that are mowed every three weeks. And just by waiting an extra week in between mowing, um, it provides way more floral resources for bees, and they're using them a lot more frequently. Wow. Yeah, which that's I thought really was cool. really cool because it's actually helped the pollinators do less. Yeah, yeah. that's really cool. Yeah. Awesome, Kelsey. Well, I think we've talked about a lot of really great things here today, and we thank you so much for being on here with us, and we can't wait to see the research you're going to do in the future. Thank you so much for having me. It's been fun.